0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm speaking today with Dr. Greg Cantrell. Dr. Cantrell is a professor of history at Texas Christian University, where he holds the Irma and Ralph Lowe Chair in Texas History. And we're going to discuss his new book, The People's Revolt, Texas Populists and the Roots of American Liberalism, which came out with Yale University Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Greg. Glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start just by hearing a little bit about you and your background? Tell us about yourself and how you became interested in history. Sure. Well, uh I am a native of West Texas. Um
0: my uh both of my grandfathers were West Texas cotton farmers out in the small farming town of Roscoe, Texas, uh 2 uh 3 hours west of Fort Worth where where I live now. Um and of course, that was the that was the region that really gave birth to to uh, populism. Uh, not not terribly far from uh, Lampasas, where the first Farmers' Alliance chapter was was founded in 1877. Um, I came to history by about the most circuitous route you could imagine. Uh, I was a business major as an undergraduate, and even went on and got an MBA in management uh, and. Uh, and and worked uh, for a couple of years uh, in the uh, oil industry before I decided that that was not my thing. Uh, the oil industry in the early '80s had one of its periodic busts after a period of great boom, and and uh, I knew that I was soon to be unemployed. So I went back to my alma mater, Texas A and M, and decided to take a few classes of things that just interested me. And and uh, uh, I stumbled into the history department one day in in August of. not what year was that 1982 and uh, they I just wanted to take a few classes they thought I was talking about graduate school we had a miscommunication and before I knew it I was a uh, I I was enrolled in the PhD program in history and the rest (laughs) as they say is history and uh, you know five years later they spit me out the other end with a PhD in my hand
1: so in a sense, you are truly an accidental historian. Just, just kind of uh, happened that way. It just kind of happened that way. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I always, I always
0: liked history, like, right. like almost everybody in our in our field. You know, I was, I, I, I was greatly influenced by a, by a great history teacher um, uh, at my freshman year in college for for you know fr- uh, first semester freshman survey class, uh, and that. And that experience sort of stuck with me all the way through my long misguided, my my brief misguided business career.
1: <laughs> and how did you come to this pop- topic in particular, the topic of the populace and uh, uh, American liberalism? It sounds like it was uh, sort of in the, the roots of the soil where you grew up to an extent.
0: Well, to to an extent, uh, I'd say that's true. Um my first semester in graduate school, uh, I was assigned, uh, uh, for, for my weekly reading in, in a seminar, um, uh, Lawrence Goodwin's famous book, uh, 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 about American populism, democratic promise, the, the populist moment in America, which then was still a fairly new book. And, uh, and I was, I was sort of blown away by that whole, by that whole book and, and the ideas, uh, that. Uh, were contained in it, and uh, that same semester I was taking a research class, and I had to write a research paper. And I had uh, I had discovered in Goodwin's book that the leader of the Black Populists of Texas, a man named John B. Rayner, had lived just twenty miles down the road uh, from College Station uh, in the small town of Calvert. And so I decided that I would write my my research paper uh, on John B. Rayner because not much had been written about him. And so I did that and I, I, I really intended to be an antebellum historian. I was interested in, in race and, and slavery and, and those kinds of things. And, uh, that, and the work in the Gilded Age, uh, was, was really sort of outside what I thought were my interests. Uh, but, uh, I could never quite get away from the populists. And so after all those years, uh, here I am uh, having written two books about them.
1: Well, let's get into the book, and let's start by defining a couple terms. First, the the word liberal and liberalism isn't one that always has an easy meaning to pin down. People on the right use it one way, people on the further left use it another way. Even a lot of liberals themselves seem to not be able to always agree on what it means, and the meaning has changed over over time as well. It's kind of fluid. So when you say American liberalism in this book, in the book's title, what do you mean exactly? What are you talking about? Well... Of course, how
0: one defines liberalism uh, depends in in large part on on what era we're talking about, but if we're talking about American liberalism in general, uh, my definition of it is um, a a coherent democratic ideology that seeks to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness— Uh, And it does that by respecting the rule of law and seeking to protect the rights of individuals. Uh, It accepts capitalism as an economic system, but it recognizes that concentrated power, whether that's in the form of an oppressive state or unrestrained corporations, uh, threatens these ideals. So, So liberalism proposes to empower ordinary citizens acting through their democratic institutions to place restraints on concentrated power.
1: And then also, if you would, I'm wondering about your definition of populism. How is populism used in current political discourse? Or maybe a better word is, how is it misused in current political discourse? And how do you mean it here? Yes, so, so you know, I think it's
0: true of, of all political labels that they have multiple meanings uh and are particularly dependent upon the era in which uh in which they're used but and 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 of course in in the in my case uh, i have to be i always have to uh differentiate between large p populism meaning the people's party of the 1890s and the movement that accompanied it and small p populism which we still hear a lot about today uh as a sort of as a sort of shorthand. Uh, now, all of the populisms have certain things in common. Okay, and and I guess I would I would uh, borrow from the uh, historian I, of ideas uh, Michael Kazin, who described pop, small p populism as a as a a, a persuasion or as a sort of style. Uh, of of American politics, and well, not not even just American politics. A style of politics uh, in which ordinary people um, ordinary people push back against what they view as the as the unjust power wielded by out of touch elites. Whether those out of touch elites are in the government. Or in private industry, so it's it's sort of a it's sort of a style of politics uh, at its most basic, at its most basic level.
1: And on this topic of populism, I'm going to ask a question that that's a big question that won't be easy to answer in a short uh, podcast interview. But I'm wondering if you could give sort of a brief history of populism in Texas. Where does this political movement or perhaps political style come from in the Texas context specifically? Sure.
0: So, uh tech first thing to keep in mind I know this is a western history uh podcast and uh and Texas many people view Texas many Texans certainly like to view Texas as a western state but it's important to understand that uh that Texas was really a southern state uh in the 19th century much more so than it was a western state uh and you know Cox, it was a cotton economy uh, in the mid nineteenth century that was heavily based upon uh, heavily based upon slave labor, and, and it remained a cotton economy in the decades after the Civil War. Uh, and as all students of American history know, uh, the uh, the cotton economy uh, suffered greatly uh, in those decades for a variety of, of complicated economic reasons. Uh, and in Texas, the the economic problems of the post Civil War, particularly the post Reconstruction era, uh, led to a series of agrarian self help movements. Um, Initially, the Grange, uh, also officially known as the Patrons of Husbandry, the Grange uh, was tremendously popular in Texas in the 1870s, uh, a farmer's self-help organization where, where farmers tried to uh, sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right, uh, by creating cooperative stores and, and marketing arrangements and such. And educating farmers on better farming techniques. Uh, the Grange uh, failed though in, in a few years and in the 1870s a new farmers self-help organization was created, the Farmers Alliance. Um, and the Farmers Alliance did a lot of the same things the Grange did. It Edu- it 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 edu- it was uh, it was organized as a sort of uh, fraternal organization with local lodges uh and it did education for farmers and it created cooperative ventures um, for for farmers where they could buy and sell goods in bulk but the farmers alliance was different in that it also uh had a political component it 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 officially was a non-partisan organization but that didn't mean it was non-political and members of the alliance uh were encouraged to discuss what we would call political economy right uh, uh, uh political policy issues about how to better the lives of farmers. And these political economy discussions that took place in local and state and eventually in the National Farmers Alliance led farmers eventually uh, in the late 1880s to to draft a, a series of I guess we would call them platforms. They they referred to them as demands, alliance demands, uh, that that looked a lot like a political platform. And they they presented these demands to the two major national parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, in hopes that the major one or more of the major parties would adopt their uh, demands and, and champion them in government. Uh, that when that didn't happen the alliance joined forces with other labor organizations most notably the, the the nation's largest labor union the knights of labor and together they created a new third party in the in the early 1890s the people's party and members of the people's party were dubbed populists and the the uh, the label stuck and uh, and so in 1892, the National Populist Party held its first national convention, nominated a presidential ticket, and 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 the 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 Populist or People's Party was 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 off
1: and running. And let's talk about that 1892 election for a moment because it's it's a critical early moment in the story that you tell in the book. Can you explain the lead up to that election and its outcome and especially where the People's Party stood both in Texas and a bit nationally as as well in the aftermath of this election? Sure.
0: So when the when the the first populist national nominating convention met in Omaha, Nebraska in um, in mid 1892 um, they, they 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 purposefully uh ha- had 1776 delegates right they were they were playing the the american patriotic card for all it was worth so 1776 delegates uh, gathered in uh in uh, Omaha, they drafted uh, the so-called Omaha Platform, which beca- became the sort of Bible of populists, uh, and 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 they elaborated a very sophisticated uh, a set of of uh, a very sophisticated platform based upon the old Alliance demands and also upon uh, Knights of Labor uh, platforms of the past, and. Uh, Calling for a, a far-reaching program of reform uh, of political reforms, of economic reforms, um, and this became the, the 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 platform on which populists ran uh, nationally and at the at the state and local level. Um, the 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 new party uh, was strongest in uh the midwest in places like kansas and nebraska uh but also quite strong in uh in southern states and it had a surprising following out in the mountain west as far west as california um like all american parties the 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 populists understood that they had to put together a coalition uh because uh, that's just the way american politics works right and uh and so uh not all not all of the people who supported the the people's party in 1892 agreed with all parts of the omaha platform and of course state platforms had to be tailored to in, the individual political conditions in in states and Texas was no exception to that, of course, as the sort of birthplace of the Farmers Alliance and therefore one of the birthplaces of populism. Uh, in, in, in Texas, the, uh, the, the party, uh, had, again, had to tailor its demand, it, it, its platform to local and state conditions. And that meant, among other things, uh, they had to address racial issues because uh, while Texas uh, while Texas was a a heavy white majority state, uh, African Americans uh, were there in numbers such that they could uh, they could hold the balance of power if whites were evenly divided. Uh, Texas was a was more or less a one party state in the at the beginning of the 1890s. the The Democratic Party was really the only game in town. The Republicans had been so tainted in the eyes of most whites by its association with Reconstruction and with black political and civil rights back in the 1870s, that that the Republican Party uh, was really a non-factor in state uh, politics. And so the populace in Texas saw an opportunity for the People's Party to become the second party in a two-party system at the state level. And and it rapidly became just that. Uh, in that 1892 election, the populists, uh, having having drafted their own state platform and uh, fielded a, 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 a slate of statewide candidates, and of course candidates at the local and county level, uh, they got about a third of the of the vote in the 1892 elections, which was not enough to win, but it was a remarkable showing for a brand new political party.
1: So it sounds like, uh, in the wake of 1892, the People's Party was in a pretty good position going forward.
0: Yes, they they were. Even though they even though they lost both nationally and at the state level, n- nationally the populists. Uh, nominated a pair of former Civil War generals, a, a Union general James Weaver for the for president, and a uh, and a former Confederate general to be his running mate, uh, and uh, and and that national ticket actually got more than a million popular votes. It was it was the most serious third party movement, I, really, since the Republicans were a third party in the mid 1850s. Uh, and and in texas the even though they lost the populists were were almost giddy with with their showing and and they looked they looked forward to the 1894 uh off year elections uh, and and 1894 was probably the high point of populism in many ways uh they they nominated a uh, a highly respected state judge um uh, named Thomas Nugent uh for governor and uh, Nugent ran a a really great campaign and and approached 40% of the of the uh of the vote in that election uh the populists had at that point in in 1892 and 3 and 4 the populists in Texas had really created a movement as well as a political party. Uh, it was a it was a social movement in addition to being a political movement, and and the social movement was still picking up steam and, and gaining adherence in eighteen ninety four, uh, and 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 scholars who write about social movements uh, have been quick to point out that. As long as a social movement sees hope for the future, the movement can continue to, to gain momentum. Uh, and, and only when they grow disillusioned does a social movement demobilize. And that's and, and, and the populists were still on the upswing as a social movement uh in the wake of the of the eighteen ninety four elections.
1: Well, let's talk a bit about the, 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 the platform of the People's Party, what these populists believe. And you argue that they didn't lose the 1892 election because of any kind of like ideological incoherence. And instead, you, you say that the populists had a very discrete philosophy of social and political life. So as the party matured, as the movement matured, what system of values and of policy ideas and proposal began to emerge? What was the political ideology of the People's Party in Texas?
0: Well, the 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 Texas populists, like populists everywhere, of course, took that Omaha platform as their as their sort of fundamental statement of, of beliefs, okay? And so um the, the the Omaha platform had called for reforms in in, in three different areas. In fact they, they 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 sometimes referred to it as a sort of three-legged stool. And the the three legs of of their ideological stool uh, were were land, uh, and and, and uh, labor, and now now I'm having one of those what uh, are those moments uh, where you can't think of the third thing in your list like like Rick Perry uh, land labor <laughs> and finance there it is land labor and finance so and they had multiple. They had multiple uh, policy positions in these three basic areas, right? So, um, in 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 land, they wanted uh, federal policies that would make uh, you know we're still a farming, we're still a rural agricultural nation in 1890 by and large, and and so they wanted uh, land to be more uh, affordable, land to be to be more readily available for ordinary farmers. This meant among other thing, uh, this meant this meant changing the restrictive land policies of the country, and and uh, and also limiting uh, land uh, speculation by by large capitalists, especially foreign capital in Texas. That was a very big deal because uh, Britain, foreign capitals, uh, capitalists, particularly British capital, had 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 swept up hundreds of thousands of acres of Texas public lands sitting on them for speculative purposes. Railroads had also been awarded massive amounts of the public domain in Texas and elsewhere and farmers wanted the government to force the railroads to divest themselves of of that massive domain of land. In Texas, the, the railroad's amassed 30 million acres of, of public lands. So land reform is one thing. Labor, uh, it, it, on the labor leg of, of, of the stool, they, uh, they, they really took their cues from the Knights of Labor, uh, which was the nation's largest labor organization uh, of the day, and so they called upon uh collective bargaining the government to guarantee collective bargaining rights for organized labor um, uh, uh shorter working hours, better working conditions all the sort the sort of things that that the labor movement has always championed so they're one of the they're one of the really early expressions of a of a fairly modern fairly liberal position on organized labor and then finance was probably in in many ways was the the highest profile uh category of reforms that they called for um the it, the nation uh, had had uh gone off the gold standard in the 1870s which had led to a deflationary spiral in the economy that had really hit uh farmers hard uh, when you're in a, we think of inflation as being the sort of great peril to economic prosperity, but deflation can be just as devastating, uh, devastating, if, if not more so. And after the nation's return to the gold standard in the 1870s, uh, the money supply, which was limited by how much gold can be dug out of the ground or, 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 or uh, received in exchange for, for goods sold overseas, the, the gold supply uh, could only grow so fast. Whereas we know the, the population of the United States with foreign immigration and natural increase was growing by leaps and bounds and the economy was growing. So we have a disconnect between how much money was in circulation and the, the needs of the economy. Uh, for for a medium of exchange, so the populists supported a variety of measures that would reverse that deflationary spiral. Farmers, in particular, needed inflation rather than deflation because farming, by its very nature, uh, requires uh, credit. Right? Farmers don't get paid for their work until they sell their Crops at the end of the growing year, so they need a way to to survive and, and and run their operation in in the meantime. So farmers need to be able to borrow money to finance their operation and then pay it back at the at the harvest time. And the problem with a deflationary economy, of course, was that. At the end of that year, if a farmer has borrowed money, he has to pay it back in dollars that have appreciated greatly in value. So the effective interest rate that farmers paid for their loans was also often 20, 30, 40, even higher, sometimes per- annual uh, effective percent. So farmers, uh, uh, well, populists in general call for uh, a series of of measures that would reverse this trend. They call for the monetization of silver. A lot of silver was being mined out west. And if you added silver to the nation's money supply, that would modestly increase inflation. But most importantly, they actually called for the country to, to abandon the gold standard altogether and to adopt a paper money standard uh, there was a precedent for this. The country had gone, the the, the United States had gone off the gold standard in uh, during the Civil War. Out of necessity, there simply wasn't enough money in the North to be able to finance the massive war effort uh, against the Confederacy. So they had gone off the gold standard, and and many populists say, "Yeah, it won the war." <laughs> Going off the gold standard, adopting the paper money standard, had won the war, and then. We then we go back on the gold standard in the 1870s, and they called for a return to what 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 was known as fiat money, money that is a medium of exchange created by law, rather than money having some intrinsic value as a as a precious metal commodity. Uh, They also called for the government to provide low interest loans. For farmers, uh, that would be backed up by the farmers' crops pledged as collateral for those loans, and many of these programs would would foreshadow later uh, later programs that would would come to fruition in the Progressive Era and, in, and particularly in the New Deal. Now, to to make their three legged stool. Uh, a reality, the populace knew that they had to have reforms in one other major area, and that was uh, in, in the nation's political system. So they their demands called for some far-reaching reforms of the American, the American political system. Uh, they call for, for example, the uh, direct election of United States senators. In those days, senators were elected by state legislatures. And in many state legislatures, it's whatever Senate candidate handed out the biggest checks to to uh, to, to members of the state legislature to get themselves elected. So uh, that's one that's one means of uh, of uh, uh, of the people gaining more say over the political system. They called for uh, all sorts of anti anti-corruption measures, uh, measures that would protect the ballot box from from voter fraud, uh, those kinds of things. Um, They opposed uh, efforts that were ongoing in many states like Texas to impose uh, restrictions on voting, uh, restrictions like the poll tax, for example. Populists in Texas steadfastly opposed that. So their idea was that if if ordinary citizens could regain control of of the the levers of government then they could engineer these far-reaching reforms in the areas of land labor and finance so in in a nutshell that's what the populists were up to
1: That's what they were up to. And I want to ask a couple questions about who they were specifically. Because the the populist movement is sometimes perhaps unfairly characterized as a party, and especially in the South, as a party and a movement of of rural white men. There were a lot of ex-Confederates among their ranks. And you make the case in the book that, you know, despite uh, perhaps appearances or or despite maybe the the stereotypes about the populists, that their attitudes on race and white supremacy were sometimes actually rather complicated. So can you talk a bit about uh, white populace and race, and then also on the role of black populace in the movement in Texas and elsewhere? Sure.
0: So the populists in Texas and in, in many other states understood from from the outset that uh, they couldn't just be a party of of white farmers that they that they couldn't the for one thing that they would never be they knew they would never be able to dislodge uh all of the white farmers in a place like Texas from their sort of ancestral attachment to the Democratic Party that 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 an attachment that extended all the way back to the era of Jackson And even Jefferson, right? So they they knew in a place like Texas, they had to build a bigger coalition than just members of, say, of the Farmers' Alliance. Now, of course, they reached out to organized labor, and that was important, but Texas uh, is still an overwhelmingly rural and agricultural state in the 1890s, and so even if you got every urban working man's vote, uh, that was not going to be enough to make a difference. They knew they had to reach out uh, particularly to african Americans uh, and but but this, of course, posed all sorts of potential problems. Uh, white supremacy was uh, an an almost unquestioned ideology among white southerners uh, the the ranks of populists were 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 peopled as you said by former uh confederates uh confederate soldiers and uh and so the populists had to chart their course very very carefully initially they tried simply to appeal to uh, black Texans on the basis of sort of shared economic interest, right? They they made the, they, they would present, say, the Omaha Platform and say, the reforms proposed by the Omaha Platform will will be the sort of rising tide that lifts all boats. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the chairman of the state populist party in Texas, a, a man named uh, Harrison Sterling Price Ashby, uh, in in the the founding convention of the Texas People's Party, uh, addressed uh, blacks who were there, and said, "Hey, you're you're in the ditch just like we are, just like we white guys are," and they thought and hoped that that appeal to shared economic interest would be enough to to move black. Uh, blacks into the populist party that proved not to be sufficient as in the in the 1892 elections the populists didn't do very well in attracting black votes in texas and so they they began to recalibrate their appeals and at the state level they began uh crafting a, a platform that had a number of planks Intended to very specifically address "quote unquote" black issues, right? So they uh, they uh, uh, wrote into their platform that they supported an equal per, uh, per capita funding for black and white schools. Now they didn't propose to integrated schools they knew that that would be political suicide but they did propose that that black uh that black schools would get again equal funding per student this was a a fairly radical thing for uh for a white party to propose to do uh they uh, they promised to place black schools under the control of black trustees uh, they, of course, tried their best to address issues of voter fraud of which black voters were most often the victims uh, of white manipulation and violence and coercion so they they tried to to make assurances uh along those lines um, uh, they again they pushed back uh, against uh, some of the more egregious white supremacist uh uh proposals of the, of the white democrats again things like poll taxes which they opposed and they recruited uh black leaders uh and and gave them a platform uh particularly John B Rayner uh who uh who, who by 1894 has become the sort of le- leading black uh uh, uh politician in the in the Texas Populist Party also a Dallas uh, man named Melvin Wade uh who had come out of the the labor union movement in Dallas and 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 black leaders like they they the, the party financed uh speaking tours and organizing tours of uh men like Rainer and Wade and and, and many others uh, and in the 1894 election, more of a true biracial coalition is beginning to emerge, and it took great it took great political courage and sometimes physical courage for these black populists and their white allies uh, to go out into these areas and uh, and organize uh, on behalf of the populist party. Some of the most Care-raising stories uh, come from the accounts of 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 people like John Rainer going off into these into these uh, areas that had been sort of old Ku Klux Klan strongholds, and, and making speak, political speeches to mixed race crowds, and uh, and calling down the Democrats and promoting populism.
1: And on a similar note, agrarian populism, uh, southern populism, is often thought of uh, as as a male-dominated movement. Um, But... Again, you make the case in the book that the the story on the ground in the moment is actually a bit more complicated than that. So what role did women play in the populist movement in Texas? And in terms of policy in particular, what did Texas populists believe on issues like suffrage or on gender, uh, changing gender norms more broadly? This is the late 19th century, a time of changing gender norms. So how did the Texas populists feel about that and what policies did they did they have in mind?
0: Yes, well, the, of course, the the populist movement is, is an outgrowth largely of the Farmers' Alliance, right? And one of the one of the notable hallmarks of the Alliance had been that, uh, unlike many other similar sort of organizations, the Farmers' Alliance allowed women and and encouraged women to be full mem full equal members in the Alliance. They didn't have to have women's auxiliaries to the Alliance or anything like that. Uh, they were full members who could come to alliance meetings, you know, s- s- uh, uh, give give public uh, uh, present spe- speeches and presentations. And when the when the when the uh, alliance sort of morphed into the populist party, uh, many of the women who had r- risen to prominence in the alliance uh, become active supporters of the populist movement. Of course, women couldn't vote in Texas or. Or really anywhere else uh, a few a few states in the Midwest and, and far West are beginning to 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 e- experiment with some limited women's suffrage in the 1890s but for the most part uh, women were still excluded as voters uh, and office holders uh, from American politics and the populists made a point to have women uh, on their platforms at uh political conventions they gave women uh, uh places uh, as speakers at at their state and national uh political gatherings and and what i found when i began really looking into the populists and gender what i really found was that the 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 populists in texas at least uh really they were really reflecting a, a change of a, a real change of thinking about gender. Um, they pushed back against the old sort of patriarchal ideas about men's and women's roles in society. Um, you know, going all going back into the antebellum period, most white southerners had viewed the 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 male head of household as the sort of sort of le- leader of his of his household and women and children and and uh, before the civil war slaves uh and and other dependents were supposed to sort of be under his care and protection um and repay that care and protection with with loyalty and subservience. The populists are moving away from this in some rather dramatic ways. Uh, I, they 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 begin to replace that sort of politics of, of of male dominance with what I call a politics of dignity. In other words, they 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 begin to to say that 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 men and women should have equal dignity uh in society that 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 women sh- again should be should have their opinions heard and and listened to and uh the sort of you, 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 you look at the uh you look at the rhetoric in political campaigns in the 1890s and Democrats are still using all this martial language about, you know, we led the charge against the enemy and, and and these sort of martial metaphors that were so common and populists avoid that kind of language for the most part. And again, talk about, talk about the rule of law, uh, rather than male might, uh, being the sort of guiding force in society, uh, and it really it really looks like the beginnings of what we would see in the twentieth century in terms of, of new gender gender roles and a moving away from the old patriarchal uh, ideals. Uh, now, many individual populists also. Uh, supported the idea of women gaining the right to vote. Uh, this was a very, very controversial uh position to take uh in a southern state in the 1890s. No southern state uh was anywhere close to giving women the right to vote in the early 1890s. Uh and the party wrestled with this uh in its in its uh conventions in Texas uh, and, and nationally for that matter uh it's when you when you've given women a voice in party affairs uh it seems like the next logical step uh and many male populists supported it uh the the party debated it but in the end, really, with the support of most of the, the most of the high-profile female populists in the state, they decided to wait on on coming out explicitly for female suffrage, uh, believing that it would uh, alienate too many members, and so they 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 decided to sort of take it slow approach. And again, many many female populists supported that that uh that approach believing that once the populace were in power they said this many times be patient sisters they these female populace would say once the populace are in power then we'll make our push uh for the for the vote and the populace of course never never won uh the state so that they, they were never their feet were never held to that particular fire
1: so with all this in mind, let's uh, let's get to 1895 and this question of liberalism again, which is at the core of the argument that you make in this book. You, you claim that the reforms put forth, even if they weren't passed, the reforms that were put forth by populists in the 1895 Texas legislature, that they were, uh, uh, in your words, that they bear the the most, hall, excuse me, they bear the hallmarks of what Americans in the 21st century would call liberalism. What do you mean by this? What were these reforms and how do they ring of this more modern liberalism
0: sure well this was this was one of the most interesting parts of of, to me personally of of the research Uh, in 1894 the populists elected 24 members of the state legislature Uh, not enough not 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 close to being a majority of the 150 some odd members of, of the legislature but enough to have a real influence and enough, enough to to sort of compile a record enough that we could analyze what being a populist at the state level meant and uh, so when i began digging into their legislative record and seeing what bills they uh, championed uh, what bills they opposed for that matter what i found was uh, a a whole raft of 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 uh, political measures that liberals in the 20th, 20th century would would readily uh recognize so for example they support uh the regulation of big business in 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 all sorts of ways uh large and small the populists had, their their initial cause uh before the launching of the people's party in the in the late 1880s had been to to regulate the railroads and and they had uh they had pushed for the creation of a railroad commission that would regulate railroad rates uh once uh once they have members in uh in the state legislature they continue to push for regulation not only of the railroads but of other monopolistic uh industries uh, like the telephone and telegraph systems uh for example they uh they sought to regulate the charges that uh grain mills could charge uh farmers for for uh for uh, processing their crops uh they uh they uh, supported a, a a whole raft of measures aimed at improving public health and safety right so things like like, uh, uh, barriers or warning signs at railroad, where, where, where roads cross railroad intersections, uh, mandating those sorts of things, uh, pure food and drug regulations that would keep people from, you know, from taking me- medicines that would make them sick, um, Lots of those kinds of things. Uh, they, of course, again, political reforms uh, aiming at aimed at curbing corruption uh, occupy a lot of the populists' attention. So they they pass all sorts of laws uh, re- requiring uh, uh, each party to be allowed poll watchers uh, at the polls. Uh, 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 banning the uh, uh banning the uh, distribution of money and alcohol at polling places which was a common way of of corrupting the vote in those days uh policies aimed at punishing those who who commit voter fraud uh so there are lots of those kinds of, of things they they support a bunch of measures aimed at um, at curbing the power of urban political bosses, uh, again, Texas doesn't have a lot of big cities, but but Dallas and Houston, San Antonio, are, are are grow are rapidly growing, and those cities had political machines very much like the big cities of the of the East often did, and so they have uh, they have reforms aimed at, at at curbing that sort of corruption. Uh, they support the. Uh, the uh, uh, adoption of the secret ballot. Uh, most people don't realize that that the secret ballot was has not always been a, a, f- a feature of American political life. Uh, in the populist era, in, in Texas and most other places, when you voted, you walked in, you, you, you got your ballot, which was, a, 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 they called it a ticket, a paper ticket with only your party's uh, uh candidates names on it you walked in in front of god and everybody to the polling place and then you you put your you you cast your ballot you put your ballot in the box in front of everybody and everybody could tell who everybody voted for uh, and uh so the populists support the idea of a, the they called it the australian ballot uh because it was, it was an idea of Pioneered actually in Australia, and uh, and it was a uh, it was another one of those political reforms uh, that that populists support, and of course then again there are those those uh, reforms that particularly spoke to African Americans that I already discussed. Those are those are things that are championed by populists in the state legislature. Uh, so all in all, when you look at the Oh, oh, another another of their sort of major reforms that that had, has never gotten much attention. They wanted to completely remake the way county government worked in Texas. Uh, in the eighteen nineties, uh, county office holders, the the, uh, the the county sheriff, for example, or the county judge, who is the the chief executive of a Texas county, all of these all of these county officials uh, weren't paid a salary. They were paid out of the fees that they could collect for, for performing their official duties, right? So if a, if a sheriff, uh, arrests, uh, a criminal, uh, and then houses him in the county jail, he gets paid a fee, uh, the 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 prisoner is is assessed a fee and the sheriff is paid uh out of those fees that are assessed uh, the state legislature has to pay fees to county officials to do their uh duty and and so there were there were counties in Texas where the county sheriff made 3 times as much money in a year as the governor because he was so successful at collecting these fees, so the populists propose to to abolish the so-called fee system uh, and replace it with a modern system whereby county officials are paid a salary, uh, you know, paid for out of local tax dollars. Um, they propose to abolish the convict, the notorious convict lease system, the state. Uh, in Texas, like many other southern states, the state paid for its criminal justice system by leasing out state convicts to private industry, where they were horrifically abused. And, of course, there, uh, uh, people of color, particularly African Americans, were disproportionately uh, targeted by the system. It was almost like a reestablishment of slavery itself. Uh, and so the populists proposed to abolish the convict lease system. So these are just some of some examples of of the sorts of things that populists uh, championed that that uh, that later liberals would would readily uh, identify.
1: So then. What happens the, the the next year, 1896, is sort of the, the the pivotal year in the story that you tell. So, what happens in that election year of 1896? How did that year help to foster the collapse of Texas populism, and how does that year cast such a long shadow over the movement?
0: Well, of course, we know that the that constitutionally speaking, the American political system, uh is geared is geared for there to be two major parties right because uh, unlike the parliamentary systems that many countries uh use where minority parties get a, get to share power with majority parties in the american system it's 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 winner take all so you need so so to be a successful party you need to be able to put together 50% of the votes plus 1 right uh to, to to be able to win an election and take power. And that's true at the local level, it's true at the state level, it's true at the national level. So third parties have always faced a nearly impossible task. The only real hope for a third party's long-term success is for that third party to to overtake one of the two major parties and replace it. So th- that's what happened in the eighteen 18- the late 1850s, right? The old Whig Party fell apart, and in its place, a third-party movement, the Republicans rose to power to become the second party in the in the American two-party system. The problem that the populists faced uh, was that the, the nation's political system was still very divided along geographic lines. The Democratic Party was dominant in the former confederate states and a few others the republican party was dominant dominant in most places outside the south uh, and a few big cities in in the northeast so which party is the populist party going to replace as the na- as the second party in our two party system if you're a if you're a texan or a southerner it's the it's already the second party in the state level two party system or the local two-party system, so Texans and other Southerners think that think that it, the the way the the way populism will triumph will be for the populists to replace the Democrats as the second national party. But in other populist states, let's say Kansas, for example, the second party. Uh, the, the 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 populists are the second party in a system in which the Republicans are the first party, uh, and so the populists in those states want the, the the populist party to replace the to replace the Republicans, uh, and and this created an almost impossible situation uh, as we approached the national elections of of eighteen ninety six. Um, the the situation really, really became stark when the Democrats uh, met in their national convention in 1896 and unexpectedly nominated a, a, a surprise candidate, uh, Democrat William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska. Bryan was a Democrat, but he held a number of quasi-populist positions. Uh, he supported, for example, the progressive income tax. Uh, that was a popular, a minor populist cause. He supported the direct election of U.S. senators, a minor populist cause, and he supported, most importantly, the monetization of silver. In other words, adding silver, a silver standard to the existing gold standard. Again, a minor populist financial. Uh, uh, platform plank. When the Democrats surprisingly nominated this sort of watered down populist Brian, uh, then that presented the populist party, which, whose national convention met two weeks later, it, it put them in a real difficult position. Some populists said, hey, this guy Brian, this Democrat Brian is enough of a populist that we should endorse him and get him elected uh th- he had a lot of support from voters in places outside of texas and outside of the south texas populists understood that if you nom- if the people's party nominates a democrat for president it will mean it will probably mean the end of the party because the party would have surrendered its identity at the national level to the Democrats, but sure enough, and they opposed it tooth and nail, but sure enough, when the populist convention met after a bitter, bitter fight led led largely by the Texas delegation, the populist national convention did nominate the Democrat brian they 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 fused as the the, the language goes, they fused with the Democrats. So t- populists in Texas found themselves in an impossible position. They had to support a Democrat, a hated Democrat, for for uh, at the presidential level, while still trying to maintain their separate populist organization and support their populist candidates at the state and local level. Uh, there's lots of maneuvering and jockeying that, that we don't have time for me to go into. But in the end, the populist uh, state ticket falls short. Uh, again, they get 44% of the popular vote in, in an election that was characterized by widespread fraud and violence. They may have actually won that race. We'll never know. But in the aftermath of the fusion with Brian and the Democrats at the national level and that defeat, that crushing defeat it disappointed them so much at the, at the state level. Populists became disillusioned at the state level. They thought their leaders had sold them out, sold them basically sold them down the river to the, to the enemy, the Democrats, at the national level, and the movement fell apart. When the movement fell apart, the party fell apart, and populists never posed a serious threat in Texas politics again.
1: And yet, as you argue in the book, their legacy remains. So, make make the pitch for me, if you would. How how is Texas populism during this moment in the mid eighteen nineties, in particular? How is it a harbinger of American liberalism to come in the the late twentieth and early twenty first century?
0: Right. So the 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 People's Party is destroyed. It's it it would it would never it, it would hold on in a few localities into the early twentieth century. Uh, But its days as a force were were over in 1896. Uh, Some old populists uh, returned to the Democratic Party. Well, of course, in Texas, many of the rank and file eventually came back into the Democratic Party, where they supported the more progressive wing of that party in the early 20th century. And uh, once the progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, came to power it actually supported many of those causes at the state level that, that I talked about a minute ago, many of the sort of progressive causes uh, that populists had, had championed. But even when, and, and, and some old populists actually ran for office and, and, and ended up getting elected for, uh, I'll just give you one, one example uh, in 1896 in the Houston congressional district, the populists had nominated a young law, a young attorney named Joe Eagle. Well, in the in in the, the Wilson era in the in the 19 teens, Eagle returns to the Democratic Party, runs for Congress as a as a Democrat and wins, and he serves several terms in the Wilson era. He's then out of office, and then when when Roosevelt, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal come along in the nineteen thirties, Eagle runs for office again as a New Deal Democrat and wins and serves and serves two more terms in Congress as a staunch supporter of FDR. So you have a lot of these kinds of this kind of influence uh, on the Democratic Party in the twentieth century, and even for those Democrats in the twentieth century, in the in the Progressive Era and in the New Deal era, even those who had not ever been populists themselves, they had they had come of political age hearing the debates of the populist era. They were intimately familiar with populist causes, both at the state and local level and at the national level. And they often and, and those causes often came into the mainstream once the major parties, Democrat or Republican, uh, gained power, so in the Progressive Era, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, will will campaign against the trusts, the the, the monopolistic enterprises that populists had fought battles against in the 1890s. Uh, the uh, in the Wilson era, Wilson supports the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Which, in somewhat modified and somewhat watered-down form, contained many of the, uh, po- the the populists' old financial platforms, uh, the regulation of business, reg- uh, pure food and drug regulations, increased uh, increased funding uh, for education, all of those old populist causes. Uh, end up getting uh, enacted at some level, uh, either nationally or at the state level. Um, The convict lease system, for example, is finally abolished in Texas at the state level in the progressive era. Uh, Moving a little further in in time into the New Deal era, uh, the country finally goes off the gold standard, effectively goes off the gold standard, uh, in the 1930s, New Deal farm programs embodied many of the ideas of the old populists who had who had supported these ideas of, of government-guaranteed uh, uh, farm loans and uh, price supports uh, for agricultural commodities. And, of course, uh, women's suffrage is written into the U.S. Constitution uh, with the 19th Amendment in the Progressive Era. And even the idea of forming a a biracial coalition, uh, which the populists did very imperfectly, admittedly, in the nineteen in the eighteen nineties, even that eventually becomes uh, a part of American liberalism in the civil rights era of the nineteen fifties and sixties. And it's it's not a coincidence, I think that the probably the pivotal figure in the national civil rights movement after Martin Luther King Jr is Lyndon Johnson who signs into uh who signs into law the Voting Rights Act of uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965 and Lyndon Johnson had grown up at the at the knee of his father, uh, Sam Johnson, who was a populist uh, member of the state executive committee and a populist candidate uh, for the state legislature in 1892. So in the case of the Johnson family, we can draw a straight line from populists to 20th century liberals
1: as we begin to to wrap up the interview here i'm wondering if you could maybe take a sort of a a thirty thousand foot view of the story that you tell in this book and i'm wondering if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding and thinking about what might that be
0: well i i guess i would go back to what what attracted me to the study of populism uh 40 years ago uh, to, to, uh, to date me. Uh, and that is that the surprise that I felt when I read Lawrence Goodwin's work, uh, and I disagree with Goodwin on, on many things, but when I read Lawrence Goodwin's work back in the in the early 1980s, and I remember being so surprised that a, a party of white Southerners, many of them confirmed, Former Confederates could change their political thinking to the point that they would support uh, this program that, in so many ways, was a precursor to modern liberalism, and that they would even reach out, reach reach the hand of of political cooperation across the racial divide and reach out to, to African Americans. Uh, in 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 a political coalition with them, that that struck me at the time as, as something as a lesson that that we need to to know about a history that Americans need to know about, and I think it's a, it's I think it's a it's a history that we still need to be aware of that that ordinary people can overcome their. Their prejudices; uh, they can overcome the the sort of cultural assumptions that they have been brought up with, and uh, and reshape their thinking uh, in more progressive ways. And the populists did that in the 1890s, and I think uh, that there's still those are still lessons uh, worth bearing in mind today.
1: And at least for me, a big takeaway was that when it comes to to, to politics, electoral politics, and uh, especially national electoral politics, they're not the be-all end-all of a political movement, that a political movement can suffer defeats, but the ideas stick around, and that politics, in the story that you tell, is very much a generational process, and is it's hard to predict how ideas that a, a party puts forward, even if that party doesn't end up surviving, they're going to percolate, they're going to trickle around in, uh, in the political discourse, and who knows what might happen, was a big takeaway for me, is that elect- Matter, of course, but they're not everything in politics. I think you're spot
0: on there. Uh, again, I think about I think about Lyndon Johnson's grandfather, Sam Ely Johnson, uh, who, 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 you know, who, his, his movement, his movement fails. Right. But his son, Sam uh, Johnson, Jr., ends up a progressive legislator in the Texas in the Texas House of Representatives uh, in the 1920s and pursues progressive causes there. And then, and then his son Lyndon Johnson, of course, signs in—you know—signs into being the, the the most important civil rights legislation ever. Uh, so, right, the the those ideas, like as you say, percolate around, and and so even even when even when your immediate cause doesn't succeed, I think the, I think the message is that that sort of activism is worth doing,
1: right. Right, right, right. So, Greg, as we as we end the interview, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next. Um, if I know historians, it's that we all like to have a couple projects on the agenda at once. And this book has been out for a couple years now, maybe a year and a half or so. So I'm curious what you've been working on in the interim, what you have coming down the pike.
0: Well, uh, funny that you should ask. I, I was working on it earlier this morning. Uh I'm working on a book actually with my wife who is a historian also uh, we're doing our the first project ever uh together and we are um uh, we are writing writing a book about uh, a notorious lynching that took place in East Texas in the year 1901 uh it was one of those horrific uh uh episodes where a, uh, an African-American prisoner was taken from the local jail and, and burned on, burned alive on the courthouse lawn. Of course, these things were, uh, unfortunately, all too common in that era. But what we're trying to do is not just tell the story of this awful event, but to do a, a deep dive into the history of that county uh which which I will let go unnamed at this point, but do a deep dive into the his, racial history of that county, and and try to answer the questions: What in the history of that county led us to that moment in uh, in April nineteen oh one, where a, a crowd of several thousand uh, decided that that they needed to burn a human being alive, uh, and and we're we're trying to. Uh, do a lot of uh of uh, you were using gis Ge- geographic information systems uh technology to try to look at uh to try to look at uh, uh economic patterns and political patterns this particular county was a populist county in the 1890s uh, and and uh the populists had of course recently been defeated in 1901 what role did that play in it so my my interest in populism feed into this story and then we're going to go beyond the 1901 lynching and try to look at 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 the memory of that lynching over the subsequent decades both in the black and white communities and see how it affected race relations and and politics and society uh, in the decades thereafter so it's it 's a book about a lynching that 's the short version but it's uh it 's really a book uh, uh, it 's really really going to be about a lot more than just that
1: That sounds like an amazing project, and when it 's done i 'll have to have both you and your wife on the show to discuss it
0: well i 'm sure we 'd love to do that.
1: Dr. Greg Cantrell is a professor and is the Irma and Ralph Lowe Chair of Texas History at Texas Christian University. His new book is The People's Revolt, Texas Populists and the Roots of American Liberalism, which came out with Yale University Press in 2020. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me today, Greg. I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you.